a, a huge welcome, everyone. And, 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 and I have to say, it's moments like this that make me feel I'm really proud to be here in Oxford in classics. And I'm not saying that we chose this venue because we thought it was going to be small. But you never know, as you know, in Oxford. And, and I'm seeing a, a lot of friends who I knew would turn out for this occasion. But I'm also so heartened to see a lot of you. And I know some of you, you know, if you're, I mean, there may be quite a few of you are undergraduates, and I'm even more delighted that you're here. And, um, you know, with that sort of bit of passion is, is, as you all know here, and particularly Oxford Classics, because for so long, Classics was never associated by many people and to this day still isn't associated with social justice, but of course with social injustice. And I have invited Nancy today uh, because for some time, I mean, I've known Nancy for many, many years, as, as I know a number of you have. Nancy's always been ahead of the curve. When I was a graduate student in the 80s, I was literally told that there were a few very nice, there were some just very nice North American women who were disturbing the canon and taking time away from what was core classic. Well, Nancy was one of those very nice women unsettling the canon and asking from those early days about, for the most part, as you know, gender inequality asking us to look with our, in those days, post-feminist, uh, late 20th century eyes at antiquity. Nancy writes on, on, on many aspects of, of the ancient world, often with, through the lens of, 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 of gender, as I've said. I've read <coughs> most from Nancy, of uh, reading on uh, and discussing more to the point with her about tragedy. And I think what prompted the invitation was the work that we did most recently. And Claire, who I think is sort of running around here and everywhere, Claire and I were so touched by some work that Nancy was doing with her, if I might say, can I say your male prisoners? <laughs> well, um, I think it would in, be true. <laughs> uh, in an unnamed institution in... Um, and we told her about uh, one of our e-books in those days uh, we were working on, on, on a Medea and if you don't know about it it's freely downloadable um, you know search on, on, on iTunes or go to our website <laughs> more to the point um, and it's called Medea of Performance History and Nancy went and read Medea with her prisoners and was, I mean, we don't have them on camera because that obviously would not be allowed, but she relayed with such passion the responses that her prisoners had had to reading Medea. And as a result of that, we asked her to do the same for Agamemnon, which is forthcoming, but Nancy's very much at the heart of that. Uh, with her prisoners. And I have become, and, and, and anyone who is British knows that we have a truly deplorable state in our prisons. The fact, I mean, I, through Nancy, I've, I would love to join with, with people here and 
more widely, perhaps to try and think more about how we might be able to work. When I was an undergraduate, a lot of people who taught me or taught friends of mine taught routinely, as Nancy does, in, in local prisons. That has all, all stopped. If it weren't for Brexit, I think we would mm. all be talking about the state of the prisons, and it looked before the last election as if that was going to be the most important thing. But Nancy's not only going to talk to us, I know, about, about uh, working with classics, and I, and I really am very conscious, we had this discussion over lunch with, with, with a few uh, close colleagues. I, I'm, I, this is not, I don't think, about reifying <laughs> ancient texts as if they are a panacea, in any shape or form, you know, it's not that you have to read the Ajax, uh, looking at people who've worked on, in, in order to overcome, you know, post-traumatic um, stress syndrome or so on. It's not that, but it's just thinking about how, as classicists and people who are passionate about these texts, we might, not just the text, but the artefacts and so on, how we might um, be able to do more as classicists. Mm and particularly um, those of you, and I know you've come much farther afield, but I'm really thinking about how Oxford might, as we often consider not to contribute or participate, how we might mm. participate. And I know, can I just say that in case Nancy forget, there will be um, uh, a piece of paper that will be circulated. If you want to sign up, particularly Nancy, yeah. I'll, I'll you tell them. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, over to you. Okay. Well, thank you all. I have um, too much to say, and a lot of it is um, maybe not exactly what was expected, but I decided to do this big canvas. So there are sections about um, a scholarly history, and then more about activism. And it's a very U.S. perspective, but I'm uh, coming right from a days about classics and diversity at Roehampton and the talk at the British Library about race on Monday night. And of course I did do some thinking about the UK situation. So I'll try to remember that I have a location as a nice North American <laughs> because it really reminds you when you're away from home who, you know, we, we use this we all the time when we don't specify. So, all right, I want to thank Fiona for her generous hospitality and lovely lunch so far and her invitation to give this talk because it really gave me the um, it, obligation to think about it instead of just kind of going along day by day. And so what can and should classics have to do with social justice? And my short answer is a lot. Um, frankly, I, I do a lot of what I do as a human being, but I think we all should do something. So you go from what you know and what you care about, and you use it to <coughs> make things better. So I, I you know, it's, as you say, it's not like classics are the answer, but they certainly have a lot to give. And I don't think we should uh, kid ourselves that we don't have a lot to give. So, as a self-defined U.S. leftist who came of age with the rise of second wave feminism, I came of, I came of age of like a PhD age, which is a different age. <laughs> and the flowering of the anti-war and civil rights uh, struggles, I had something of a bad conscience about studying Greek from the start. Uh, given that the intellectual or academic branches of those political movements attacked the curriculum 
and in particular its domination by dead white men. Classics certainly seem guilty as charged. Since that time, I've sought to bring together these two strands, the radical and the traditional, participating in what uh, Hardwick and Harrison termed in their volume, the democratic term. Uh, but I, like many others, still have a great deal of anxiety. My first book was Anxiety Veiled, and somebody said, is that your anxiety? <laughs> I thought it was Euripides's, but you know. Exactly how democratic or radical can we be within the constraints of and on the field? As a result, this talk will be full of on the one hand or on the other. There's always a demurral or a but. And um, throughout, I'll be sketching in what we, classicists, have done and asking, is it enough? Or what does it actually do? Or a version of, what have you done lately? <laughs> I'll address scholarship teaching and activism, approaching them from three perspectives, women and gender, sexuality, and race, ethnicity. If you can't follow that, don't worry. <laughs> when I get to the prison teaching, I'm at the end. <laughs> I'll end with classics in uh, prison theater and prison act education. So, going back to this bad rap that we've got, is classics white? And on your handout, which was going to be a PowerPoint, in, uh, the public perception of antiquity as white and European persists. In the last year, the web-based group Identity Europa has emerged and energetically claimed ancient imagery as its own. Um, making, reclaiming it part of Trumpian trumpets, becoming great again. Um, here, the Euro-American present is seen as in a direct line with antiquity, and the whiteness of the past is asserted through its statuary. The posting of these flyers at department offices, like departments of Africana studies, but they were housed in the same building as the Jewish studies department and the classics department, you know, so it was not clear who was the target, um, led the, S the Society for Classical Studies to take a stand. Uh, and they posted this and sent it out to everybody saying, the mission of the Society for Classical Studies is to advance knowledge, understanding, and appreciation of the ancient Greek and Roman world and its enduring value. So that is one of the you know, problematic statements, like this is the knowledge you must all have. But then they go on to say in this, this statement, that world was a complex place with a vast diversity of peoples, languages, religions, and cultures spread over three continents as full of contention and difference as our world is today. Greek and Roman culture was shared and shaped for their own purposes by people living from India to Britain, from Germany to Ethiopia. Its medieval and modern influence is wider still. Classical studies today belongs to all of humanity. Then, the statement really turns quite political for the SES, which is about as left-wing as uh, perhaps the CA, I'm not sure. <laughs> for this reason, the society strongly supports efforts to include, that's not my phone, all groups, silence your cell phones, please, all groups among those who study and teach the ancient world and to encourage understanding of antiquity by all. As scholars and teachers, we condemn the use of the texts ideals and images of the Greek and Roman world to promote racism or view the classical world as the unique inheritance of a falsely imagined and narrowly conceived Western civilization. So that was in 2016. This, by the way, classics, you know, usually you don't have to worry about it being so fast moving. But when you start doing this stuff, you, I'm lucky to have people who read uh, widely. Anyway, 
In 2017, Sarah Bond, an assistant professor of history, posted an article online in which she gave the current evidence, scientific evidence, demonstrating that the original statues were not white. She went on to argue that the old orthodoxy about their whiteness poses a current problem about the whiteness of our field. Uh, the equation of white marble with beauty is not an inherent truth of the universe. When the, where this standard came from and how it continues to influence white supremacist ideas today are often ignored. And she goes on to talk about the statistics and the underrepresentation of minority groups in the field. So in the U.S., 2% of PhD students, 9% of undergraduates are people of color. As a result of making these arguments, which were, you know, it was popular, you know, online publishing, she got death threats. So these, these things are serious to a lot of people, uh, or maybe only a few crazy people. So, so we can see there's a public sense of the field as white and masculine. And of course, to some extent, the labels were and are fast, uh, fitting. Historically, the study of classics, and this has been well studied, was an unquestioned part of a liberal education, the value of which was taken for granted in middle and upper class communities. And a classical uh, education helped in the formation of white male elites and led to jobs in colonial management, as others have documented in more detail. As a result of this past, you know, progressive classicists like myself are suspicion suspicious of traditional claims for classics' importance and transcendent value, since that tactic was associated with the denigration of other traditions. But there's another layer um, uh, confronting us now, which is the discipline is hardly viewed with the automatic respect with which it once was. So that's, I mean, that's another rock and hard place that we're between. The current emphasis on the utility of education has led to a drop in attention to the humanities in general, classics and modern languages among them. Um, even, I mean, Obama's, you know, ridiculed uh, the art history degree as being worthless, or why would you major in French? So it's not the Republicans uh, alone. The, um, see what I mean about these pages? <laughs> so there have been a variety of, uh, Okay, so with these attacks from left political movements on the one hand and neoliberal practices on the other, we must come up with new reasons to study the ancient world. Something more than individual taste, oh, I like it, but less than universal and its natural, quote-unquote, importance. There have been a variety of responses to the ideological attack. Um, let me start with feminism. And this is kind of, I want you to see the, this history that... Fiona was uh, acknowledging, thank you. Um, to cite one particularly clear position, uh, performance theorists Sue Ellen Case charged Greek drama with suppressing women and that the form replaced uh, these women on the stage who look so important with men who represented patriarchal values. Feminist classicists replied with research and activism. We made visible the fragmentary women writers we could find, ex excavated the lives of actual women, which was a new form of social history and studied the representation of women like me uh, and later gender in male-authored canonical texts. We wrote scholarly articles, but we acknowledged the passion and we wrote to be part of a movement. Uh, we openly made a connection between the present and the past. As Amy Richland put it in an essay that we published together in 93, I write in anger and I write so that oppression is not forgotten or passed over in silence. 
And in those heady days, we were optimistic about what our scholarship would do. Our first fight was with the discipline, surprise, surprise. The ideology of the discourse was that it was non-political, right? This wasn't even a discourse, right? It just was classics. Feminist theory was and is closely related to politics. Um, so we had to show that our research was valid, even though it took a point of view. More pragmatically, there were few women in the profession and even fewer senior women. So equal opportunity in the field was a professional matter of urgency because it affected the question of who would be reading and reviewing our work that we submitted. Would we be read fairly? Would we be promoted? So, the, you know, it's like job security was not unimportant. We have to some extent ex succeeded. There are more women in the profession now. There is so much to be done on harassment and contingent faculty, uh, to name two issues. And, you know, it's like you read all this stuff about Hollywood, I'm sure you're <clears throat> reading uh, about Weinstein. But the, the fact is, this is it's still in our, in our profession at, in the States. Of course, it's not that way here. Young women and young men are harassed at professional meetings. You know, you were trying to get a job. So, uh, so that's still ongoing. By ignoring another big caveat, to a large extent, sexuality, race, and ethnicity, feminist classicists of that day, mea culpa, missed an opportunity to pursue a more radical agenda from the get-go. Moreover, classics and the academy remain the purview of an intellectual elite. So I would argue that we're not making wholesale cultural change by changing the CA or the SCS. Even studies such as Kathy Gatz's, if you haven't read her work. Oh, and I have a, a bibliography if you want it. Uh, please, we'll send it to you. Um, about rape and Homer and how it's really just the same old, same old now. Uh, it doesn't end the practice writing, even the most radical writing. Uh, perhaps this technological advance, which has enabled people to reach more people, like <laughs> uh, my poor friend Sarah Bond, will will change that. But I think mostly classicists are reading even the public intellectual production. So D the GLBTQ movement also prompted changes in the curriculum. What could gay youth read that would give them hope? Eve Sedgwick, who's a star of mine, said, "How do you bring your kids up gay?" That was in '91. Attention to issues of sexuality have followed a trajectory similar to that of feminism. In this case, though, there's a longer pedigree for using classics to fight homophobia, going back more covertly or more closetedly Winkleman, and even to uh, Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century. Simons and Carpenter in the 19th century made positive connections between ancient and modern sexuality by a pederasty. You know, this is very treacherous terrain, obviously. While feminism's focus on making women visible led mostly <laughs> to a story of oppression. You know, I mean, it's really, there was not a lot of good news. Uh, where we had to search for signs of agency in the chinks, in the heroic armor, the gay and lesbian movement could actually look back to antiquity uh, with pride. Though a lot of ink has been spilled over the question of whether there were homosexuals before the name, indeed the continuity position I guess that's a pun. The continuity position has all but disappeared. Certainly, the ancient Greek model of pederasty in philosophy validated male same-sex desire to some extent. Um, there's a fabulous cover on uh, David Halperin's How to Do the History of Sexuality, um, Homosexuality, and you know, there's a mirror. But I don't think it was very much acknowledged because it was so 
the connection between pederasty and pedophilia was uh, what needed to be disambiguated. But I do think there, the same passion that we felt, the same investment that feminists had, I think a lot of the, uh, the work in sexuality studies had as well. Reclaiming women's desire for women and Sappho as a lesbian was similarly political. Um, and like feminism, the GLBTQ movement has definitely changed the conversation in classics. And there's a Lambda Caucus in the SCS, I think, and regularly panels and uh, papers on queer sexuality, they flourish. So that, that landscape has changed. But race is clearly the most pressing issue facing us in the US. As I've already noted, a major challenge to the pri privileging of the traditional curriculum came from the civil rights movement in the states and post-colonial studies. Scholars have found ways to change the field, like the feminists. First, some have worked to debunk the myth that it was white classics. Others have been actively studying the history of the field and its connection to imperialism. And third, the study of representation of race and ethnicity in the ancient texts. Intersectionality, a buzzword in women's studies these days, motivated those of us who were originally most interested in gender to see that gender and race and class, gender and class, yeah, are connected and should be interrelated in our work. So I wrote a paper on the suppliants, and I gave it. I felt pretty good about it. It was about rape, and I was actually it was part of a. I was studying it as a test study, test case for rape, and then I submitted an abstract for a a, a, a session on color, and I realized that actually the fifty maidens who are fleeing marriage to their fifty uh, Egyptian brothers racialized these men as as they try to make themselves white. They darken the men. And so well, I hadn't seen that at all when I just looked at it from the perspective of gender. And so it's, it's, it's really educationally very important to look at the intersections. It's not just a buzzword. Um, so all of this writing is really important in changing the way we think. And I don't want to minimize the importance of changing the way we think. but. Making the discipline itself more inclusive and diverse is slow. What do we do as opposed to what do we say? So these um, numbers of black and Hispanic youth getting to the college level, the four-year college level in the States, is very small because they come, if you come from an undersourced, under-resourced high school, you know, you're not gonna go to a four-year school. So I'm really encouraging colleagues to work with the high schools, to work on exciting kids about myth. And if they go on in classics, great. If they don't, fine. But at least we have to recognize they're not going to come up to a, an elite four-year school like Hamilton without something happening along the way. And let's re acknowledge that when students from these backgrounds do reach university, the, the perceived whiteness of the field may discourage them from pursuing classics as a subject. From what Mathura Umachandran says in a recent piece in Adelon, which I recommend to you, it seems that not much has changed since Shelley Haley wrote about her experiences in feminist theory and the classics in 1993. Both were questions about why would they want to do classics, and um, both found that there was you know, they were invisible in the profession, even when they were there. So uh, Chand uh, Uma Chandran ends up by challenging those of us in the field to do the work of self-critique 
at the personal and disciplinary level, without which the racial inequalities that are, that are constitutive of the very idea of Western Europe will continue to poison the ways in which white, brown, and black classicists interact. And Shelley Haley um, wrote in 93 that, that she thought that classics was the great equalizer, but then when she was in the field, she realized that the idea that she was exceptional because people were still surprised that a black woman could do classics. And But she says she wants her black feminist friends to recognize that classics are not the enemy, and she wants classicists to realize that she could be a real classicist. But it, it's, it's, it's really poignant that this is still going on for her. Um, so, and, and Danielle Allen was interviewed um, for, she's a professor at Harvard now, she's got some big fancy administrative post and she's being interviewed and they're still asking, why do you go back to this material? So she's, she doesn't say, well, I was just trained that way. No, she says, I don't want to rule out any material. I want access to it all. And I think that's what we have to get across to high schools. But then again, we have to modify our behavior at our professional meetings. How do we actually act? Um, it's in the body language, amongst other places. It seems obvious to me that we want to share the text and culture that we have knowledge of, but the, those of us in the field have a responsibility to make sure that our behavior is actually inclusive. So, so far I've been talking about um, professional classicists and changing the face of classics. And that makes um, a nice segue to the next section, which is new work using ancient material. Women directors and, and writers have found much of value uh, the Medea, Oedipus and Rita Dove, Homer, Iliad and Odyssey, these modern versions built on the classical tradition and challenge it by telling the story differently. So that's a kind of social justice work. Marginalized groups used to use the ancient plays also for, uh, in the U.S. for insurgent purposes. Post-colonial classicists have turned to African, Caribbean, and Latin American, and some of the publications uh, from the APGRD include the, uh, the Americas broadly construed. Uh, others are working on special, special specific groups of marginalized people in the US who have used the ancient Greek myths for reclamation and identity construction. In her forthcoming book, Melinda Powers focuses on specific US performances that take Greek tragedy as a framework through which to exercise identity practices that aim to take back, revise, challenge, and reclaim uh, stereotypical representations. So she's big on the positive. This usage um, is consoling to classicists, I think. On the other hand, we might say with Audre Lorde that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Does reusing the ancient material liberate or simply show the continuing force of colonialism? Certainly, the possibility that using the classics is a conservative move has been raised for those artists of color as well as the scholars that I mentioned. Uh, Ralph Ellison, Rita Dove, Toni Morrison, all big in using classics, have all been called not black enough. These writers refuse to be limited and lay claim to a multiplicity of traditions. As Rita Dove asserted, the Oedipus story is part of her heritage. So. It may be a result of the empire, a little bit more removed in the case of the US. Um, syncretism is real. People do not just have one tradition anymore. 
Uh, in my work on Rita Dove, I came to this conclusion. Although her references to Greek mythology, like her emphasis on individualism and universalism, I mean, she says things about women do this and women do that, which I find really, you know, a little shallow. Um, so although those emphases may be class-based, we don't need all artists to adopt the same style or to fight colonialism and racism in the way that activists and essayists do. I would agree with Dove, who said we need both Malcolms and Martins. That's Malcolm <laughs> Martin Luther King. Uh, given the possibility that with post-colonial reception studies, we are simply reinscribing colonial hierarchies, we cannot be complacent about the power of the material we study. In a recent article, again in Adelon, Johanna Hanning puts it this way. Instead, the hard and rewarding work lies in figuring out how to keep doing what we do, studying antiquity and its legacy, while at the same time acknowledging and further exposing the damage done by the old hard line on classics and Western civilization. She recommends that we become critics as much as classicists when we do reception. But so these, these texts have the, all these problems about deploying antiquity, but as plays, as performance, they have the additional possibility, the hope of, re, of creating community and reaching a broader audience than our lectures or essays can do. Luis Alfaro's Electricidad uh, links the electromyth to gang violence and revenge killing. And when he produced it at the Mark Taper Forum, he made uh, sure that they would have a Latinx audience by busing people in from East LA. So if he hadn't done that, it would have been a white audience. So the community that would have been built would have been from the actors and that audience, but it would not have built this other kind of community which um, he, he was dedicated to doing. So I think that we have to be aware that the theater-going audience is often small and the theater-going audience that's interested in classics is maybe even smaller, you know, so we need to uh, make an effort to of outreach, here we're in the outreach room, to make sure that other audiences are brought in. So, um, lest I run the risk of self-flagellation, let's remember that it is significant to address the elites. Here I am at Oxford, which I was very aware of. Um, they have to be at the table. We have to be at the table if we hope for meaningful change. I mean, I spend a lot of time feeling totally powerless, you can imagine, um, in my country in these days. Um, but it's... People have to take hold and act. And I was reading uh, Femi Osofisan's uh, essays, and he defends the importance of that audience. He was, you know, writing from within a university setting, and and he says he wants to give voice to the voiceless, but he believes that the quote really vital battle is to be waged among the educated class, which in our country does not uh, include a privileged elite. He sees his job as trying to raise the class out of its customary apathy into combat, provoking it into anger and active resistance. Although he would agree with Boal that the, the play is not the revolution itself, he hopes to take a part in progressive change, positive change. And, um, you know, when, we, when I teach, when I'm looking at you, I'm facing the privileged and uh, who have access to power um, by virtue of being, um, just by being virtue of being here, 
it's a certain kind of of power. So you know, I think that's an you're an important audience for me. So let me turn to pedagogy. I teach mostly privileged students at Hamilton College. I mean, they are part of the one percent, um, and I want to challenge their comfort. But again, you know, teaching classics or ancient material is definitely. Um, Challenged. It's a challenge to attract a diverse student population. On the one hand, there's still gender trouble, and I think you're going to have Ovid next after SBSES Dayton. So there's Ovid, and there's Butler Library. Uh, Ovid has been central to past and um, present controversies. You know, in the in the early days, people were saying that Ovid was just teaching rape. And just two years ago, the mandatory core curriculum at Columbia, some students still read the Metamorphoses in translation. These slides show the importance of classics. So there are the texts that are on the uh, Metope. And then over there, the first feminist revolution, they put all the women writers that were not important, and they put it in a banner. The next one is from the current student activism, which was also on the steps of that library. And it's Rape Happens Here. Um, so one student complained to her teacher, this goes back to the trigger warning that I was talking about, she felt triggered while reading such detailed accounts of rape throughout the work, that's Ovid. In addition, she said the classroom itself made her feel unsafe because the professor only focused on, everybody that I know who knows Columbia says, who was that, focused on the beauty of the language and the splendor of the imagery when lecturing on the text. The article continues, this is all from the student newspaper. When she approached her professor after class, the student says she was essentially dismissed and her concerns were ignored. So of course, very much depends on the teacher and the individual student. There is rape on our campuses, however, and we can, if we're careful, use the ancient material to analyze um, the issues, not to ignore them, but we have to be committed to that. So I'm sure some of you have followed the debate about the uh, reading Latin, yes, reading Latin textbook. Some, some terrible graduate student in the U.S. said that they were so much rape in this, the examples in this Latin book. And, and um, I forget, the U.K. Spectator mocks this, uh, this opinion, right? And Jones, the editor or the author, I guess, says, we should not avoid stories of rape. We should interrogate them. But we must interrogate them. And I think what happened in my education was they weren't even acknowledged, much less interrogated. So um, <coughs> I teach tragedy, and I, I, I um, teach an avowedly political version of the course. And um, I don't just teach the ancient plays. I teach ancient and modern plays that will are guaranteed to raise the issues. And if they don't raise the issues, uh, and nobody in class raises them, then I do it. Because it's a, an important model that you don't have to be uh, a person of color in order to see where uh, ethnic groups are being treated in a, uh, in a sort of stereotypical way in a play. Um, I do think that one of the sets of problems that you have is that because of the reputation of the field, I have so students know who I am, and so I get a lot of women students. 
but students know who I am, and I don't get a lot of students of color, and that is, you know, exacerbated by the um, the, the reputation of the field. But that doesn't mean that I don't continue to teach uh, writers of color as often as I can when I'm doing this tragedy then and now. Um, what acts so Rita Dove says that her Oedipus myth brings up questions of how social conditions act as fate for characters. And through making these connections, so then I ask them to think about what are the, what's fate in their world, um, my courses on the ancient material become political. They may not make for social change directly any more than the plays do, but insofar as they reach individual students and make them think, they do have an effect. Teaching can transform students by getting them to ask the hard questions. If we teach by discussion, not lecture, hello, how are you? <laughs> um, there is a chance we can actually give students tools that will help them understand those with different points of view and even to work with others different from themselves. Any literature course can have the effect of teaching students empathy or how to walk in another's shoes. And scientists have increasingly realized that the arts and literature have value in, in training medical students for this very reason. Uh, they, they particularly mentioned Chekhov, I think. By reading, we can begin to see how it feels to be them. Practicing these skills can give students a desire to make a difference, to do something. At the same time, it can teach complex thinking. I mean, not only does Greek drama explicitly address some of the most complex and challenging ethical ideas there are, it requires <laughs> interpreting multiple characters, right? And typically, tragedy offers no simple answers. I always tell them there's no takeaway. Okay, so that's that. I'm switching gears now, and I'm addressing current efforts to change uh, things, employing our expertise. While in the past, the field constructed an elite, now to take one example, this new group uh, has as one of its goals to bring classics uh, out of academia, oh, sorry, and bring it to marginalized populations. So we have a listserv, it doesn't oblige you to anything, but we do you know, publicize calls for papers, and mostly in the US, but a lot of people at Roehampton signed up, so you know, please sign. And we also have a, a WordPress site, a blog, and there's information on there, and I think it's called Classics and Social Justice, no space, but you'll find it. So that's the end of that ad. <laughs> um, so, Okay, the, 12, 13, 14. So, mass incarceration is a matter of grave concern in the US where we imprison more people than any other nation. 5% of the world's population lives in the States, 25% of the prison, world's prison population lives in the United States. There are 2.2 million people, there are Oh, so this is this is a sign of how women are using antiquity. Um, and then here here are some stats uh, about prisons. Um, the racial dim dimensions are terrifying. A young man of color is more likely to go to prison than to get a four-year degree. Um, so there are prison abolition movements, and then there are there are these smaller efforts to mitigate the effects of incarceration. In, globally, there's um, theater, and I've included a slide from um, one, one such uh, play of Antigone in Bogota. 
And the women in, in the interview speak <coughs> of the freedom that playing Antigone gave them. When there was an important man in the audience, they took the <coughs> occasion to bare their breasts and shout at him about their conditions. So they made the connections. At the end of Who Guards the Island, same thing happens. Guy takes off his costume, of course he's still in his other costume, right? and says, you know, join me. So this, the, direct, the direct address, again, of performance is intense. In the U.S., there's an, our program called RTA, um, and they did an Oedipus. Um, be, and they said that they understood Oedipus because they had felt the hand of fate in the environs they inhabited that sent so many young men of color to jail. Later, they speak movingly about, this is a film that they did about their program, They about how it changes them. And they say it offers them a chance to dig deep inside. So this is prison. And let down the mask they must assume to survive in prison. So they drop one mask when they take the mask of the, of the character. And the important thing for them, and this is true of that, the men in my group, the volunteers treat them like human beings <coughs> with trust. Um, so theater, theater often, so these are the classical plays that I found that have been done in prison. And that was my brief for this talk, was to talk to do classics. But of course, there are other theater programs with uh, Dante and Shakespeare, and, it, and it's very powerful. Prison theater often cra crafts plays from the inmates' own writing. And so I'm now going to talk about Rodessa Jones, with whom I interned my last sabbatical. Um, Jones began with Medea. So this is called the Medea Project, which you can find online. <coughs> she had seen a dream of, of passion and Pasolini's Medea. And in a recent uh, interview, she talked about the origins of her project. She had this to say, quote, I was so moved by the two women in a dream of passion because the one woman really did kill her child and the other woman is an actress. Before that, I had met this woman inside, meaning inside the jail, who had killed her baby because the guy was going to leave her. Medea was one of the first stories that I told. Medea was the first story, and they got really upset. The women in jail were furious. They were indignant. This bitch was stupid. There wasn't no man ever make me do that. So she calls them up short. I mean, she's a, when you, you look at the website, she's a fabulous presence. And, and nobody could, could do this. Wait a minute. We're sitting here in jail, y'all. There's some little one somewhere. He or she may, she may as well be dead because you're caught up in this. My mother's got my kids, I said, if they're lucky, but they don't have you. She asked them to write something about the ways in which they could see that they were like Medea. Practice empathy. And that was the beginning of the, of the project. The sharing is a crucial part of her, of her method. Um, I'm, she came to the jail where I, where I teach, and, and she, I couldn't believe what she got out of it. She was there for two hours, and they talked to her about things that I would never have had the guts to ask about. So I want to read you, how am I? It's three. So this is because I always wanted to be an actress. So this is about Pandora. Pandora was a woman, and y'all know how women are. Even my mama used to tell me, don't trust no women. So Pandora was no different. She was made by Zeus, the big daddy god of them all, to trick humankind. The word out on the street, Zeus made Pandora so he could get back at Prometheus. Can't no man really resist some good poor, well, you know, a fine woman. So right, Zeus made Pandora fine. She was the ultimate in beauty, according to the stories about her. 
I ain't never seen her myself. So anyway, Pandora, she was fine. You know, curly red hair, big baby blue eyes, slim maiden vixen with the fiery red hair and the white skin and the gowns. Miss Pandora worked everybody's nerves. Well, Zeus hooked her all up, and he and the other gods gave her to Epimetheus. Now, you know, you can't ever get something for nothing, my mama used to say. So definitely, Zeus put some craziness up in the mix. Before he gave her to Epimetheus, he and the other gods gave Pandora a box, or a jar, or something. Some people say jar, some people say box, but each god put some messed up juju hoodoo type drama up in there. Whoa, girl! They gave that to Pandora, sealed it up, and sent her on to her man. Zeus said, baby, I need you to hold this here for me. You're the only one I know I can really trust to hold this. No matter what, your man may threaten you. Your mama might beg you. Somebody might say they're going to give you some money, but you don't ever in your life open up this box. If you do, I'm telling you, you're going to regret it. And so is everybody else in the world. So she said, oh, yeah, you sure are right, Zeus. I'm going to hold it for you, baby. Your box is safe with me. But you all know she opened the box, and when she did, all whole hell broke loose. Only hope was left. So the modern street language here gets a huge laugh in their performance. Um, Pandora's a woman, and we all know about women. We all know what the world says. Women are noisy. <laughs> and nosy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's another word. <laughs> Using the word box makes a sexual reference in the state stand out for modern audiences. And her holding it also relates to women's role in drug trafficking, which is how most women in those days in jail got there, was through doing some stupid thing for a man in drugs. The box also refers to solitary confinement in prison slang. So you learn something in the box and you get out of it with new strength. Jones tells a second version of the story where that's the case, in which Pandora is a mother goddess who has powers that have been stripped away from her. Her jar is full of gifts from nature and she gives them instead of receiving them from the gods. Jones uses the latter version to inspire hope. Um, but there's no doubt that the first version is the one that actually everybody knows. And those are the stories that incarcerated women are up against, and they must be countered to set women free. The, and this is, I'm kind of projecting Medea Project ideology here. So she ends up um, on the website, she said, these about these issues, these issues directly contribute to recidivism, which is returning to prison endlessly. Based on this observation, Jones founded the Medea Project, to explore whether an arts-based approach could help reduce the numbers of women returning to jail. So I want to turn now um, to prison education because there's a strong uh, correlation between um, prisoners receiving an education and they're not returning to prison. Um, and that's this guy. While um, this makes a strong motive for teaching in prison and leads to funding of projects, um, it's also part of the potential complicity. You know, what are we actually doing when we teach in prison? And 
Um, I don't want to feel like an agent of the prison administration, but there's no doubt that uh, if you can prevent fights, of course, by getting people to engage in rational discourse, you are helping people and you're also making better inmates. But classes are participating and material from antiquity is being taught in programs ranging from the formal, which lead to a degree, uh, usually an associate of arts, which is a two-year degree, not quite a college degree, uh, to the informal, which is mine. I participate in what's really a book discussion group at a medium security facility in upstate New York. And the, the informality is sometimes a problem. It really boils down to the fact that there's no infrastructure and they don't give a hoot whether we're there. I mean, we're just, they view us, us, there are four of us, as just more work. Uh, in the, so I'm going to just share with you um, what we've been doing, and a lot of it's been uh, inspired by <coughs> Rodessa Jones. I first thought that I would be able to do a play with them, and why not? You know, I went and I worked with her for five weeks, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to do it, and I mean, there was so much in our way, and, and, and in, but in the process, we, we had a great time. When we first read the play aloud, it was hilarious. There was lots of fooling around, uh, just like in The Island, if those of you have read it, about playing Antigone and his mania. One man, a huge guy, I mean, so he must have spent all of his time weightlifting. And um, it really, if you saw him out, if I'd seen him outside, I probably would have gone the other way. Um, he said he would never live it down in the weight yard if he were seen playing Antigone and he did this little high voice thing. Um, so, you know, I asked them to write something about it and then we could read those things that, and they talked about Hyman a lot. Uh, they really saw this father-son, and when I teach it, really, there's hardly any, so that's, oh, it's very interesting, the different, the different readings. But anyway, it never happened because I broke a rule. And so I was being re-educated. <laughs> I really, I was having my, I was having re-education. Um, but and then it was too late. But I did not give up, and and I participated in the projects that um, Fiona mentioned. So here are some questions that they had in relation to the text, mostly in the. Oh, going back to informality. So because I was coming here and doing this other thing at at Roehampton, I I booked in five sessions with them when I got back from my home, my second home. And, I mean, they, my life is so different from theirs, it's, it's embarrassing. Anyway, I got back and I booked in five sessions with them so we could do the Ajax. And I would have new things to say from them. And, you know, it was just impossible because of the informality, because of the lack of commitment on the part of the authorities to the program. So there's not much from these new guys, but since the Agamemnon's not out, I'm not plagiarizing yet. <laughs> so here's some questions that they had in relation to the text, and I hope you know because I'm not going to give you the plot. Mostly the Agamemnon. What will be waiting for you, man, when you come home? What happens to children in the absence of the father? What happens to the children when they witness violence between the parents? Could Agamemnon have done it another way? I was never sure what they meant by it, but <laughs> did he go to Troy because he wanted the wealth of Asia? Is that drug money? Is that embezzlement? Why did he bring home his whore and ask his wife to take care of her? They have no respect for Jason, by the way. <laughs> and for themselves, how do you remain a dad while you're away? What does it mean to miss all those family events, to be separate? In the plays with strong male protagonists, uh, 
a lot of our conversations centered on masculinity. Most of them say they grew up without men or models of healthy fathers in their lives. Several of them have many children with different women. And this guy had married all those women. And he doesn't have anything to do with any of them. So he could, but he doesn't. Uh, they talk about the pres pressure to be a man, to be tough in prison. They recognize this as a code. Who is a real man in prison is defined by what you see going back to that guy who didn't want to be in, you know, out there with a little girl's voice. It's superficial and external. There's pressure to, quote, get your weight up. For some, the loss of an insight or a sense of self while in prison, or we might say while in university, <laughs> is a pressing concern. What happens to the real you if you're always performing? Others point out that there's a choice. You don't have to follow the code. You don't have to be huge. It depends on character. But he's, what he's saying is that there's another way to dominate. Of course, we know that, don't we, uh, a situation. But it is still a matter of domination. There's a strong sense in the group that, that the masculinity is control over yourself and others. So don't be sensitive. Don't get involved. And yet, an older man, black older guy, who actually is in a wheelchair, said, he's, he's proud. He intervened to help somebody out. So I don't, you know, how do I, how does he get away with not following the code, right? Is it because he's older? He's a big black guy. He's religious. He, 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 you really can't really believe these stereotypes. One of our members says he cultivates a, cultivates a calm attitude. Waiting online at the water fountain in the yard, for instance, a macho man thinks he can just cut in. James says, if someone pushes ahead of him, he lets him. His attitude is, I can wait. And in this way, he resists the code. But another guy in the group says it really has to do with whether this is somebody who is a peer who he has to put down because to not put him down would be to lose face. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting, these calibrations. Um, and I'm going to wrap this up, but the prominence of war in the place led us to think about the role of violence inside the walls and outside on the street. When they discuss the gender conflict in the Agamemnon, they have a clear understanding of why Aegisthus is so violent in the end on the basis of their prison experience. Because incarcerated men lack power, lack control, and are there, and this is a quote, are therefore deprived of traditional measures, I think, of masculinity. It sounds a lot like Rupinarism. They also attempt to gain it by putting others down. They need to assert themselves because they're not certain of themselves. That is, Aegisthus' subordinate role with Clytemnestra is coming through as a reaction when he roughs up the chorus or, or threatens them who are less power than him. So, um, uh, discussing the chorus's line that wisdom comes through suffering, the men assert that they are learning a lot by being in prison. It's a necessary evil that leads to growth, which is like what Rodessa Jones says about the Bach. I remind them of our class on the Apology, which was a year before, and Socrates' ideal of the examined life, in which they said that prison gives them the opportunity to reflect. That seems and seemed a bit sentimental to me. Uh, and we discussed the differences between their lives and the lives of monks in other kinds of cells. I bring up the humiliation that they face daily, which is intense. So how similar are they really to monks? What is it on the outside that would distract them from philosophy? So, I mean, are they just kidding themselves? 
uh, I think what, what they said was that the people who are in maximum security, which is long sentences, violent crimes, they want to use the time. They wanted to make the most of it. And that's the people that they're talking about there. In medium security, which are youngsters with short-term sentences, they just want to do the time. And they're not that interested in making the best of it. So, in short, they use the place to think about themselves, and I encourage them to do so. To get back to the demand for useful education and Professor Obama, <laughs> that's the kind of utility I seek. At various times... We've discussed the role of this class in helping them avoid violence, revenge, and anger. They thought it was giving them tools, a way to do surgery on themselves. They also thought I was restoring to them a patrimony that they had been deprived of. Because, you know, I, was, I raised with them my doubts about why we do this work. Uh, it is not the text, however, so much that makes a difference. Shakespeare, Dante, and others have similar results. I do this work as a classicist, but also as a human being, as I said at the beginning. And I speak to the men as human beings. That's the main thing about our discussions. They're not a number in my group. Their opinions are taken seriously, and they're more than their crime all the time. The men relish this opportunity to speak freely. These meetings are not for everyone, however, and our class is very small. Perhaps being in class is not part of any dominant ideology of masculinity in jail. So, coming back to my doubts, this program is not the revolution. It is perhaps merely putting garlands on the bars. It is certainly an uphill struggle, especially in the winter. There are constant difficulties in getting in. As the, the guards always laugh. They say, you guys are dying to get in. Most of these people are dying to get out. <laughs> Will the books get there? Will they get to the prison? Will they get to the classroom? I mean, would you have thought there was a big contraband movement uh, in Greek tragedy? Uh, <laughs> It makes us feel better, maybe. Nonetheless, we are making steps. The participants clearly find these classes liberating and thought-provoking, and I'm convinced by their reaction. In the end, to do this work, you have to believe that creating an oasis for a few individuals is worth something. It certainly is worth something to me. But let me end with a quote. So this is really the end. The Greek tragedies really did provide me with an opportunity to think very seriously about what makes me tick. Why do I make the decisions that I make? Where is the precedent for this or that? It said earlier that the group has become like a therapy session. I feel that in the prison more than at Hamilton, I can directly help people to live the examined life and participate with them in examining my own. There are limits we must observe, no touching, but within those boundaries, we are free to fly high. In conclusion, let me say what must be obvious. With all my doubts about our efforts, we must all do what we can where we are. I'm a teacher, and Greek tragedy is what I know best, so that's one place where I can be useful. Thanks for your attention. I really look forward to talking to you. Uh, I open it up immediately to the floor. Any any questions? Yeah, and ideas about... Oh, yeah, people have to go... Or yeah. if you're no, no, suffocating, open the door. Open, yeah, open the door. Um, There's supposed to be a hurricane out there. Compliments of us. We, we've got a question here in the front. Yeah. yeah. Hi, um, so I'm also an American, um, from outside New York City, originally. Oh. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's nice to hear an American accent. Um, <laughs> I guess my, um, so this is kind of a long-winded question, but, um, so, like, 
as I'm sure you're aware, there's a lot of evidence that like uh, prisons in the United States are used as a tool of racial oppression. Yeah. So it's like there are a lot of prison administrators and, and politicians and just average people who maybe don't actually have much interest in the prisoners being rehabilitated. They just the system is no Yeah. So you're fighting against the system there, um, and like you said, it's an uphill battle. So I guess my question is, because like you talked about changing the field of classical studies and you talked about okay. what classicists can do, right. what do you think should be done in terms of bringing in people who may have a classics background but aren't necessarily in classics? Like, for example, people who went to law school who also studied classics in undergrad. I mean, do you think that that's, that might be a piece of the puzzle? So I think that's what I was addressing at the end, I don't think there's one solution. I mean, we people who are professionals in the field of classics have one set of concerns, but then really, you know, they're not the most important concerns. So, yeah, I mean, I'm fighting against the perception that classics really has nothing to do with any of this, with the evidence that yes, it does, because we can do it. It's something we know, and it's important material, and we can share it. So, of course, a lawyer doesn't have to be a classicist. A lawyer who wants to go, they, those guys, in my, they would eat that up. They're interested in the law. Let me tell you, are they interested in the law? There's a law library there. Is that answering your question? Yeah. It's not only about classics. It's only because we're classicists that I even wrote it this way. Yeah. Thank you, though. And do it. Are you a lawyer? No, I'm doing my master's here. I might do a doctorate in classics. I might, yeah, I'm just... <laughs> Good place. <laughs> Hi, I'm a faculty member at Brandeis University. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> you, got my, you got my New York... Uh, <laughs> yes. yeah. But I want to propose an idea um, which just came through to me in your talk. You talked about the, um, the lack of diversity among undergraduate students um, and know, more amongst graduate students. And graduate students, and you can just keep on going up. And the lack of diversity, where does that come from? Why is that there? Where, when it is also the case that there are lots of um, affirmative action programs and lots of efforts and lots of statements, we don't want it to be this way. And so what we do is we go and look after these kids, and then we try to get this kid and have him come. At Brandeis, we tried something else. You know Dan Terrace? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we tried something else which worked. Um, and I only bring it up not to... Not to, uh, not to brag, right? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> really, not at all. But to wonder if there's a, there's a key here to something we had missed, which is we didn't focus so much on who the kids are that we were attracting. We created a program where... Um, minority students or underrepresented communities did not come in as individuals. Yeah. They came in with it in a group of ten. We didn't invent this. We didn't, but <laughs> we do this too. Okay. <laughs> we probably do it because we we use the same program, yeah. which is Deborah Brialis. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. I don't. You know, forget yeah. forget who's of doing course. it. What I'm saying is, if ten of these kids come in together rather than they don't take classics. 
You remember where we are. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Before, before you do that, before you trash it, just No, no, I'm not trashing it. Give me what a chance. What do they do once they come in? What yeah. they do once they come what they didn't do is they didn't take science. And so we created a new program. We would take only 10 students of color, let's say, or very poor or whatever it is, who wanted to do science and would do science. They support each other. Mm -hmm. They don't let each, yeah. anybody else uh, leave. They don't let anybody else fail. They become a group, which is a better way for mm -hmm. them to work. So my question is, is not, uh, and it, I'm so excited about the fact that there's something that seems to work. Yeah. Um, but, my, but it's super expensive because they can't pay for anything. So the school has to pay for all of this, but forget that. Uh, my question is, are there hidden processes not hidden people, not hidden, you know what I mean? Are there processes that we don't even understand, like applying for college? Oh yeah. You know, or, or whatever it is that steers people away or makes it impossible for them to get there, rather than the talent of the individual, it's the interstices between the individuals and institutions. And I believe it's the same thing with the high school to, to prison. Mm -hmm. There are processes within the high school oh, absolutely. that open the door to prison. So I was just wondering, if mm -hmm. we could, how do we yeah. find those processes? So, um, it's, so the program that I was talking about is the Posse Foundation. That's what it is, yes. So the, the problem for classics is really the bad rap and its uselessness. I mean, it's perceived uselessness, uh, the humanities, you know, I mean, it's the perception that these other disciplines are going to get them a job. But then, so, yes, of course, you know, active recruitment but I, is what you're talking about. Oh, no, 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 you are. I'm it's talking about new forms. Right, 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 but active, energetic, yes. not just putting a statement on your website saying, but that's what I was saying, what do we embody when people get to our meetings, you know, in the U.S.? And there is no posse, there's no 10 in your cohort, people of, of color, or when we started. We made, that's what we had to make a caucus. We had to be together, because otherwise we were always the only woman in the room. And, and that was deadly. And that's what I think you're talking about, this, this number. Um, the ideology, I, we can talk for hours about the ideology of, of posse. I was a mentor. And you know, they are now accepting students who could pay, and they're giving them these scholarships. So I have a big problem. I'm talking about hidden processes. Right. But the hidden processes are racist. That's what I That's want right. us to acknowledge. Right. Right. And everything at the school, of, at a place like Hamilton, screams that we are a formerly male white school. Pizarro, oh, yeah, let's talk. I think we've got Pizarro, yeah. Catherine, and oh, let's talk at the back. Yeah. Um, first, thank you for your talk. And second, um, I'm also from the US. Oh, wait, is there anybody here who's not from the US? Yeah, next yeah. time. California. Oh, another one! <laughs> At least one person's off from New York. <laughs> um, so, at an under, I can really only speak for the U.S. And uh, but something that comes up a lot in talking about diversity in classics at a university level is the intimidating factor that is the language base mm -hmm. at, of majoring in classics, and that is something that in the states really only private school kids are exposed to. Same thing here. So, okay, same thing here. So, turns um, out, I guess. Uh, I wanted to hear what your perspective is on, because so much of what classes pride themselves in is the rigor of the language, 
Um, and so there is, of course, a hesitation to. So full you know. disclosure, I'm in conflict. Okay. <laughs> and I, so, but I do think that you guys can speak to this much more. There's the erosion of classics here um, in, at the university level and at the, at the school level is intense, right? I mean, where, where are there departments that are the way you're talking about? That how many students are there in the UK even with this long history that could come in with enough Latin? Well, I think there the are a number of people who, I mean, yeah. Catherine, do you want to speak to that? And then maybe, Kassim, do you want to yeah. speak to it too? I, only because yeah. of coming well, in. I wanted to say something else. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I was going to say, I thought, you, I mean, I thought Oliver no, was going to no. say, you, Catherine, are a superstar who just, you know, says, you know, I mean, you came in with no Greek. Did I came you? in with no Greek. Yeah. Yeah. But have, how much Latin? Well, so at my secondary school, Latin was taught for a year, and then the Latin teacher retired, and they didn't replace her. And I found her when I was 17. I got her to teach me a bit. You know, this was my, uh, actually, for privilege, because mm -hmm. I had parents yeah. who would be willing to pay her 20 quid a week to me. Second year, allowed into Oxford, was taught really intensively. And I think one of the things that you have in the pretty good at teaching ab initio classical languages in an intense in an mm. intensive manner probably better mm. than we are as a whole in the UK mm. um, and so I suppose my own view is I, I think the languages are a really important part of classics right I mean I, I like the fact that there's something we have that we're about mm. and I like the fact that there are people in universities working with the languages and you know yep. that's not going to happen in classics departments where is it going to happen mm. the message has to be but if you're adequately resourced and you have good teachers and you're committed, absolutely, you can you can learn it. My colleague Eleanor Dickey, who you know is well known, said, "Learn all our languages at university." Mm. Mm. You know, yeah, absolutely. And, and and so, and why can't you go and do Arabic, possible. Chinese mm. from scratch, yeah. but somehow mm. Greek and Latin? Yeah, it, I mean, as you say, in certain institutions, it hasn't the resources haven't mm. gone into it. The teaching mm. hasn't been good. Sorry, I mean, just ask Cassie. But, but you had something you wanted to say. Oh, yeah, oh sorry. Oh. Speak to yes, really quickly. So yeah. I, I'm the outreach officer here at Cathy. I also, I did pass civil at school, no languages at all, and then managed them both from scratch at Cambridge and did the Masters as well. Um, I think there's a bigger conversation about um, what counts as proper classics. Mm -hmm. um, that's part of kind of elite universities in the UK and the US about whether we, where we put archaeology and ancient history, um, mm -hmm. and about the way we talk about language learning. It's still very much based on kind of an enlightenment of your education that spits people who can do languages and people who can't. Um, and then in, in England we've got kind of passive and people doing Latin and Greek and the schools that do Latin and Greek tend to be independent schools and the schools that are doing classical civilization tend to be state school. Mm -hmm. um, but in my opinion, having done state school, having done this, been a bit of state school, done passive, classive is much closer to what universities think of as classics as a discipline. Um, and the languages, the kind of students that come to learn languages at initial university see those languages as extra, an extra piece of kit for their toolbox in mm. unpacking the rest of the classical world. Um, and I think there's a disjunction there between universities which still try and sell classics mm -hmm. as learning the languages and then it does themselves, whereas we should be selling them as a really great thing you can learn which will right. enrich your study of the classical right. world, but it's not, it's not the be-all and end-all of your right. study of the classical world. Well, yeah, I think that... Um it's happening, you know, whether, what we do with it, but it seems to me that, uh, I mean, in Ham I, Hamilton is so different from Oxford or even a major research university. It's a tiny, tiny school. Um, but, you know, the pressure is on. 
And nobody comes to Hamilton with Greek. I mean, period, that's it. Some people may have, a, have some Latin. But, um, but that's a question of, as, a, of a, as a definition. It does take away from what I was saying is that we have material which people will love. And mythology, stories, kids will love it. Although if you do what I did when my son was in third grade and I was invited to give a guest lecture and I talked about the castration. <laughs> my son was so mortified. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to you have to vulgarize. Uh, but it, yeah. But before yeah. 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 <laughs> before you were typecast as a language person. What's a British person some points that you kept coming back to in the different sections of, your, sections of your lecture really resounded with me. And in relation to the conversation, I think I'd like to just say something about empathy. Um, because I think there are a lot of issues, um, especially around the sort of points around race, which I think relate mm. to empathy. Because uh, one of the reasons why so many black men are incarcerated <laughs> is a move to maximum sentence or a move to yeah. prison oh, sentence, yeah. a move to incarceration immediately, yeah, in the case of people of colour, which does not occur mm. when you have juries and judge right. face with white people. Mm -hmm. And that occurs in the UK as well. I mean, mm -hmm. We had a report only last week on the you know, different, different chances and, and racial discrimination. Uh, also things like uh, disciplinary actions getting dismissed from jobs in the NHS, for example. Um, and so on, because people move immediately to the serious disciplinary action, because those informal channels are not there. Uh, and so I was really glad to hear you say that you worked, uh, even if you have a white class, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> in uh, uh, getting them to read black writers. Yeah. Uh, because I think that is absolutely crucial, and I see on so many levels, and even with some of my writing uh, nice classics colleagues, um, and it's not an inability, because when it's pointed out to them, they can, but the move is not to empathise with people of colour. And, and just to give you one example, I was involved in some very interesting discussions with the Women's Classical Committee around the attacks on Sarah Bond oh. and the attack on Mary Beard over the issue of ethnic diversity in Roman Britain. Mm. Um, and what to do if you're attacked. <laughs> what to do if you're attacked on Twitter, that's what we need to do. You know, this is the issue here. And actually, Mathura and I pointed out the common denominator here is that these were people speaking out on race. Mm. You know, and for us, you know, she's British, I'm British, it mm. was, whoa, feel the hate. You know, feel the fact that thousands of people out there are committed to the idea that there could not be families that look like our own wandering around in this country 2,000 years ago. And that was completely invisible mm. to most white colleagues mm. until we pointed it out. Mm. And that's an example of some of the kinds of mechanisms, I think. You know, that was a relatively benign context with nice colleagues who could then appreciate it once it was pointed out. But it is on a kind of scale with the move to incarceration as well. So I think yeah. working on whiteness <laughs> yeah. in various ways is an important part of this story. And going back to the privilege, of course, you know, I was talking about the class privilege of my students. I mean, the fees at Hamilton that 50% of the students pay are 60, 60 to $64,000 a year. So it's very high ticket, <laughs> the full ticket price, the sticker price. But I want to go back to um, this this other question about, and you raised it, so in the States, 
it starts with suspensions. So in the high schools, we, they, we know they are racialized, and once a kid is suspended from school, then they get in trouble. And then, then this other system kicks into place. And then it affects the, the polls. It turns out that in the southern states, I think there are nine southern states, though if you're incarcerated, then you can't, unless you've paid back all your debts, you can't vote. So, you know, so this, this, this is very, the layering is important. But I, I do think it's an opportunity, and I hope that we're not going to miss it this time around, because I think me and my ilk, um, we missed it the first time around. I mean, there was critical race theory at the same time that, that, that uh, the WCC was really all uh, in the states about white issues. So they weren't called white issues. They were called women's issues. So I hope we don't miss it. There's one, Jesse, yeah. yeah, and then then Liz at the front, yeah. Yeah. So thank you for talking this happening. Um, I was just wondering what you think should be done in high schools as far as um, kind of the introduction of Latin and Greek. Um, so places that don't have them, or um, like if you think there are programs that are doing that well, yeah. or that sort of thing. Well, you know, I think that there's a. I think. Unfortunately, the social justice group uh, is not, uh, the people that I know don't have enough time to go teach Latin in schools. And there's not, it's not clear what the method, what, what the reason would be. And I think we need to work that out. So I don't you know, Jessica Wright also, another piece in Adelon, she wrote about teaching Latin in the prison. I mean, she did a full on Latin course. And um, the, you know, she had she had questions about why why do Latin. I think we need to work out aside from the old motives. Do you have to go right to me? I will. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I think we're sisters. There is another another process I didn't know about. <laughs> can can I just add that there was some very good research done. I'm sure some yeah. people in the room. I think in the mid 70s and came out of the States, yeah, which showed that if you take Latin mm -hmm. into inner city uh, <coughs> deprived areas and you improve literacy dramatically yeah. because definitely it was used here very successfully at one point to persuade a lot of people that it was worth doing. So there is, but just be, so there's a separate group, the Paideia Institute, that's working on this mm. in, in the States. I don't know uh, globally. I yeah. yeah. So there are groups. Uh, but the fact is that time and money are always the great issues. And um, uh, I think we have to face that, that people have to do what they can do or maybe expand beyond what they think they can do because that's true. I mean, we don't have to give up on that usefulness uh, argument. I mean, well, it isn't, and particularly if no, it improves no. literacy. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. We don't have to give up on that. Yeah. It, this is the way we can be useful. Mm. Can I, can I, I, I'm aware that people obviously have other things to do. Liz is desperate to have um, a question, and then obviously... Okay, and then, and then we may have to break and go and have a cup of tea, but we can continue oh, well, the conversation. So, Liz, do you want to ask well, your... Your information point might actually relate to what I was going to say. So it was just that the Harlem Project, which was actually... Oh, is that what it's saying? It's not just that it increased literacy um, performance. It increased performance in lots of other subjects as well. Yeah. It did things like maths, um, 
because mm. I mean basically because we have this language because English is half Latin and half not and I mean in a language like German the word for triangle is a three corner so every German child can very easily work out what a triangle is whereas when we have once you know that there's this sort of tri stem from from Latin mm. so it, yeah the point was just that it wasn't just literacy and no it's brilliant yeah well there's and there's a lot about learning language like about learning Latin where you don't have to speak it and so I mean I know there's a lot of spoken Latin now but it, it's an advantage if you're shy or you have a speech defect and there's been studies about that about the silence of Latin uh, instruction being useful actually so and you don't have to worry about being conversational and I think I mean I do think that the the difficulty of Chinese puts us in the shade you know I mean, really, and these—and you're right. People go to university. Nobody expects them to have had Chinese before they get there. So it's—it's. It's, but then you wonder, right? What is it? Have we played into that, our cachet? And I believe that it, it, part of the elitism of the field has been, oh, you must have these languages, and and we've shot ourselves in the foot that way. Yeah. Hi, yeah, gosh. Oh, I, so I know, I know, this never happens. I'm completely blessed. Um, yeah, uh, so fascinating. Sort of all the way through, I was thinking, you know, this is, you know, how can we get sort of classics and, and well, just, just not even classics into prison so yeah, much in the UK, exactly. but just into prison. Yeah. Just a bit of like, social mixing. And it reminded me of a project I tried to do a long time ago, um, going uh, with the um, local homeless shelter in Oxford, mm -hmm. Lucy Faithful, Faithful House, which of course is now being demolished. Um, uh, yeah, well, we haven't talked going about and that. Going reading the Odyssey, and it was just so difficult. Even though I have a friend who worked there, to actually just build those bridges to go in and, and actually set up even the most basic, like just a weekly reading session. Mm -hmm. um, and it just really sort of made me think. After that, I discovered sort of Earl Shores, you know, Riches for the Poor, and this sort of thing. It really made me think. Hang on, maybe there's a lot more in the tradition of sort of um, uh, kind of not quite classics outreach, but actually kind of bringing classical education into sort of my um, uh, sort of marginalised societies yeah. than, than I actually realised. And then maybe I thought, hang on, maybe this whole story has been marginalised. This whole story of exactly what well, you're doing has actually been marginalised. If we demarginalise it, then we'll actually make all of these routes in which this can be done. What your colleague mm. was saying about, you know, what are the structures? Mm. Do we actually just need to look into how it has been done a little bit more and sort of make it a little bit more mainstream that actually this sort of thing has always been going right. on? Well, just, there's not much said about it. You know, so it's, it was interesting because I was at the Classics Association of the Atlantic States and um, there was a paper um, about this tradition of black people doing classics. And um, in the states, and how that's not really talked about very much. Um, it was the problem for me is that that whole history is under the cloud of being. Um, we can we can be as white as you, and that's the, I mean that's the big butt I have in this idea of. I mean I want people to love this material and want to do it, but I don't really want to say, oh, you know, you must do this to be a member of this cultured class. That, and that's the conundrum. I mean, and, and Liz was, uh, Jessica, I mean, was, it was brilliant the way she put it, because she found out that she's teaching Latin, really, you know, and that 
somebody, uh, the head of an outside agency, send me anybody who's been through your program. So again, it was the exceptionalism of Latin. And so then we know, yes, Latin can work to get you ahead still in the 21st century. And, and she felt very awkward about the fact that that was the case. And yet, that's why people want it. That's why the men in my group wanted to read Oedipus. They want that. They don't want to be excluded from that. So maybe that's a good place to. Wait, is there anybody left? I've talked so much. <laughs> maybe it is a good place. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, and in terms of the, a lot of my friends are like, well, why are you trekking into Oxford every Saturday morning mm -hmm. to study a dead language? Because um, we study Latin. And it was the issue of utility. Um, yeah. And they just didn't see why, like, why do it. I, mean, I did it because I'm a nerd, but apart from <laughs> <laughs> um, And you see it with other humanities as well that you mentioned, um, because I made my school's like, 1,200 students, um, and there's only six of us in our sixth form that are studying a language, which is Spanish. Um, so it's not just classic. Yeah, no, absolutely. The humanities as a whole, um, you know, you'll see this at most universities if there's a job that they can attrite from the arts or humanities, they will, and it will go to social sciences or sciences. And that is, um, this is an uphill struggle on so many levels. Um, but more power to you. <laughs> 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 yeah.